maybe I could just convince a few people that waste can be seen as a resource and it can actually be beautiful if I turn it into something really, really sexy. We're the Majority Group, and this is Style as Identity, where we profile the designers and founders whose mere existence shifts our understanding of the style status quo. We're your hosts. I'm Lola Catero. And I'm Frankie Aquasim. And after years of settling for style that didn't represent us, we set out to find the brands that did. Join us each episode as we learn from brands that are an extension of their values, identity, and aesthetic. And because of them, we're seen and represented. Pineapples, recycled nylon, apples, recycled felt finally belong in the same sentence thanks to the work being done by Bin London. Jenya Maniva, founder of Bin London, realized the literal tons of waste we dump every year and how short-lived that waste was. 99% of things we buy are thrown away within about six months. So she turned frustration into opportunity to create what British Vogue has dubbed one of the most innovative fashion companies in the world. This episode, we're chatting with Jenya about Bin's mission to shift perspectives on waste by creating innovative systems and collaborating with local makers. The result are bags that are beautiful and an ode to the possibilities of their source materials. Text Bin London, that's B-E-E-N-L-O-N-D-O-N, to us at the number 833-495-4773, and we'll text you the visuals. London, here we come. Hi, Jenya. How you doing? Hi, guys. <laughs> really well. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes, it's good to see you, Jenya. Likewise. So in reading up about your backstory, working as a political journalist, years in the BBC newsroom, the catalyst that seemed to irk your nerves enough to pivot careers was coffee cup waste. And we were wondering, like, were you personally knocking them back and dropping them in the trash? Was it a story you read? Like, what went down that led to the creation of Bin London? Yeah, I watched the documentary. It was a documentary about waste in general. And coffee cups were one of the things that the documentary was talking about. I thought I was being a good girl, putting my used coffee cups into recycling bins. And that turned out not to be true. <laughs> so I was like, I'm doing the right thing. But actually... The documentary was talking about the fact that nobody recycles them because it's composite material. It's all very complex. So as a former journalist, I just started talking to people, reached out to a few recycling facilities and realized that not a lot of things actually get recycled. And what they told me was we would actually rework more materials if somebody bought the resulting materials from us. So that's when I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be that person with no product design experience, with no experience in retail or manufacturing or anything, I thought I just need to do something about waste. And even if it's a small contribution, even as a former journalist and as a campaigner at the time, maybe I could just convince a few people that waste can be seen as a resource and it can actually be beautiful if I turn it into something really, really sexy. Yeah, and the idea was to make a product that would look amazing, function and be practical, just as a normal, in our case, it happened to be handbags, but divert waste from going into landfill at the same time. And then I got a degree and then kind of validated my assumptions. And of course, it turns out to be a much better product environmentally because the CO2 emissions are 
tiny compared to anything made from virgin materials. That's the short story. Sorry, it was quite long in the end. No, you included all the fun bits. And I love what you said about, you're like, I have no experience in this, but you're like, your heart's in the right place and you'll learn the rest later, which I think is honestly the energy I would love to bring to my life. But you mentioned the documentary. Do you remember the name of the documentary? It's fine if you don't. Of course. Of course. It inspired a whole country. (laughs) It's Hughes' War on Waste. And years later, well, not years. I mean, it's all, we're all talking about like five, four years ago that that was all happening. I happened to meet through mutual friends, someone who now works with Hugh as a producer. And she passed on the message to the guy who presented the documentary that a social enterprise, a business that has now won a couple of awards, was actually inspired by one of his films. I'm sure we're not the only ones. It was a really powerful documentary. I'll check it out. And you kind of started talking about this, Jenya, but we're curious to hear from that moment where you started to have the inklings of this idea, you got your degree to get more into it. What was your initial mission have been? And then how do you think it's evolved to today? You know what? To be honest with you, it hasn't evolved much. I initially saw it as a campaign. In my mind, I had this idea, I had this image of, A woman, in that case, I just imagined a girl, like a friend of mine, meeting up with friends and putting her handbag on a table. And everyone goes, oh my God, great bag. (laughs) She goes, it's made entirely from waste, entirely, and tells them the story of like, the zip is made from single-use plastic bottles, but the lining is made from discarded Ikea and KLM uniforms, corporate uniforms that then got, you know, reworked into felt and then they became padding or the lining is made from discarded clothes that can be reworked into new, absolutely luxurious materials. And I think I wanted through that kind of contrast of a really sleek looking product and the fact that it's made from rubbish, I thought maybe that contrast would make people interested in where things come from, but also what happens to our stuff when we throw them away? Where is that away? You know, what happens to that pair of jeans that you're like, okay, I can't even paint in them anymore. They're not even my like DIY jeans anymore. Can't even give them to a charity shop. You can't make shorts out of them. You know, something that's really at the end of its life cycle. What happens to that? And to me, another story that led to being London being born is I was volunteering at a refugee camp in Calais at the French border. And I was put to sort out the clothing donations. And one of the piles that we were creating was no longer wearable. And I was like, oh, hang on a minute, where is that going? Like, what happens to all the socks that can no longer be donated? What happens to the stuff that can no longer be repaired? And that led me to discovering that there are people, there are startups, there are companies around the world that actually are just learning. It's better now, but (laughs) I'm learning to rework old fabrics, old clothes into new ones. And it's a beautiful process. It makes so much more sense from the environmental point of view. And yeah, I just thought it was fun, the storytelling and the impact of it all. But to answer your question, sorry, I kind of deviated a little bit. It's okay. You know your audience. We're both marketers. So pitching to us about a campaign, (laughs) it works. (laughs) Now that campaign has simply widened. So I think if initially I saw that individual whose mind I wanted to kind of, you know, just wanted them to get curious about where stuff comes from and where it goes. But as we grew, I thought maybe I could convince big corporations to think about that too. If we've been relatively successful with our customers, can I get a big company to think about their textile waste or any sort of waste? And 
yeah, we're working with some really big corporations at the moment. We just reworked, we did a partnership with DHL and Formula One, and we reworked the used advertising banners from the sides of racing tracks into a capsule collection. And we're now working with those of other big companies. So my mission hasn't changed. It's like, can we remove as much waste as possible from the system and turn it into new products? Can we convince lots of people to view waste differently and be proud of it as we go? So it hasn't changed, but it's kind of shifted a little bit. I think we became more ambitious. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, just showing that it's possible and then shifting perception on waste is a beautiful mission and you're definitely doing it. And so we want to theme today is to talk about materials, but wanted to quickly touch on funding because I think the way you started and how you started is quite impressive and wanted to kind of share some of that. So 2018, your Kickstarter reaches goal in 26 hours, just about 20K in US dollars, profitable within one business year. So then you did Cedars in 2020, which is another fundraising and raised nearly over 340K in US dollars, we could say then, exceeding your goal by 185%. So the people voted with their dollars. They want Bin London to exist. What main tactics do you attribute this initial success to? Uh, (laughs) That's such a good question. I hope people, those who supported us initially during our Kickstarter campaign and then on Cedars, I hope they could see that it was a genuine drive to change the way things are made. I really didn't go into this with a mission to make money. I had a really successful career until then. You know, I ruined my career for this. I think people saw that it was genuine, but that's not enough, of course, right? For Because the Cedars campaign was equity fundraising. So that was people investing their money into the business, so buying a small share of the business. And the reason we actually went for this is we felt that going down the traditional route of venture capital funding, I had a few conversations and it was very clear from very early on. So they are mostly men and they also really wanted to focus on cutting costs down. And I'm like, you know what, we've been successful until now because we prioritized impact. Let us solidify that and then we'll talk. And this is why we went to our customers and we said, guys, do you want a piece of this business? This is what we believe in. We believe that things should be made differently. They can be awesome while being made from waste. They can be made from certified materials locally with all the makers being paid London living wage. We think we can do it. Do you agree with that mission? And they, yeah, they supported us. So we're now co-owned by hundreds of, of our customers. I love that. You know, there's no VC fund telling us what to do. It's a bunch of our customers and friends and family and just people who believed in us and thought that was a good idea. So it gives me goosebumps just talking about this. (laughs) But I'm really happy we did not go for any sort of down the VC route at that early stage. Not to be overly poetic about this, but I do love that because I think just from following your brand and seeing how much emphasis is put on doing our part, each of us doing what we can, as well as sharing the future results. I mean, you're quite literally doing that by having it be co-owned by the community and having it live in the community, but also be something that's like breathed as a result of the community. So I think that's great. Thank you. I hope we do and will make all our customers that have a little piece of the business. I hope we make them proud. I really feel like we work on their behalf 
to help them tread lightly by creating a product that has tiny carbon footprint compared to anything else that they can, that they will be buying. Yeah. When we think about your customers too, you've named a few different types of customers now. There are those that kind of share the future of the company, they co-own it. You mentioned expanding to companies. So yeah, talk to us about what this customer group looks like. There's a breadth of them in terms of like, in your mind, who's that? You talked about envisioning a campaign earlier. So maybe you can draw up a prototype person for us of who your main customer is, but also the way in which that your customer types are expanding, growing in your mind. I think the way we design, the way I design is always just imagine my group of friends and like, what would they really, really want? But we co-design with our community as well. So it's a lot of our customers are women, but we're currently developing a unisex collection because we do get approached by men saying anything for us. So the DHL collaboration was unisex. And I think that attracted much more diverse audience. I don't think in market segments. I don't think in demographics, like probably a marketeer would, you know, just segment their audience. I think we have a bunch of creative people who care. They often really want to do something about their buying purchases and their everyday decisions, but they don't quite know where to start. And they come to us to get a very no-nonsense product, but they also come to us for education. And we try to share our expertise in very simple language and, you know, explaining things like carbon footprint. Everybody knows what it is, but do people really understand how it's calculated and how sort of on a day-to-day basis you can make decisions and contribute positively to climate change rather than negatively, which is, you know, everything we do has a carbon footprint. And in terms of the business customers, again, it's similar. I think what, what is common is it's the businesses that really care, but don't often know where to start. We create a product that helps make a difference for those people. It's for the customers to make a difference, if that makes sense. So your business customer, like the DHLs and Formula Ones, the collaborations, do they come inbound to you or are you reaching out? How does that go down? We've never reached out to anybody. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. But I think there was one turning point. So about a year ago, British Vogue named us, quote, one of the most innovative fashion companies in the world, unquote. They sure did. I was there thinking... Oh my God, we're a team of like two and a half people. (laughs) Outsiders, like I don't come from the fashion industry. And on the one hand, of course, we were very chuffed and we thought, oh, this is amazing. But on the other hand, we thought maybe this is a sign of how bad things are in the industry rather than (laughs) how amazing we are. It's more like... It's both. (laughs) Maybe, but it's, yeah, why does it take so little to get this I think that article and a few others that followed were read quite widely and we just one day we got approached by DHL and then I think the, the success of that collaboration led to others getting in touch. So now I'm thinking, oh my God, we really need to hire people to proactively do this work. You know, imagine how far we can go if there's actually at least one person doing this outreach. You know, in terms of impact, and this is always the most important thing, this is how we make all of our decisions, like where is the impact in terms of impact, collaborating with big business, of course, is very interesting because you can scale the impact really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Going into the product a little bit deeper. So you work with a lot of materials, vegan pineapple leather, regenerated nylon, recycled leather, vegan apple skin leather, recycled felt, recycled cotton and recycled polyester, just to name a few. So you have to get each one exactly right to meet your standards. 
how do you even get these materials and what makes a material a good fit for your process? Yeah, very straightforward answer. Three criteria. Every material we use has to actively divert waste from going into landfill. So it has to capture some sort of waste stream. It has to be certified. We want to rely on independent certification and we feel like this achieves the highest level of transparency because you can't go and check yourself. You can't see certain things. So we rely on certification and it's usually a global recycled standard or blue sign. But yeah, there's a breadth and all of this is explained on our website in detail. And the third criteria is that it has to look really good. (laughs) It has to be a good, durable material. Because at the end of the day, we want to make the best products. We don't want to compromise on the quality of the product, on how durable it is, how waterproof it is. Like it has to be a really awesome material, colors, textures. So yeah, very straightforward. Three things that we look at. I mean, I'm quite geeky when it comes to materials. So I go to a lot of material innovation exhibitions. There's a really good one in the Netherlands that I go to every year. It's called Material District. They have an amazing newsletter as well. If So if you have any geeks, I mean, it's a great newsletter. I mean, there's also Recycling International newsletter. That's a difficult read. <laughs> so you have to like plow through a lot of <laughs> industry news. But Material District is like very light form, exciting, but with a lot of depth as well. There's some really cool things. And I just, you know, if I see something interesting, I just reach out. There's a girl that turns discarded oyster shells into pearls like pearl buttons and things and I'm like oh my god what can we make out of this so for us it starts with materials and material research so we get in touch we have a chat usually fascinating people as well behind those innovations and you just go what can we make from this (laughs) that our customers would like I'm definitely going to sign up for that newsletter (laughs) I already opened it up and when you told Lola oh it's actually quite straightforward I think making it mathematical in some way Does that help? Because there are a lot of materials that you could use. So does that help in your mind almost kind of maintain focus in making it really easy to say like, this is a fit and this one isn't? Absolutely. So, I mean, material innovation is booming and it's amazing. There are lots of materials that are grown to become that leather alternative. Which one are you most excited about right now? Oh, I'll tell you in a second. Uh I've got my favorite. But for us, it's very easy to say, you know what, we're not going to use this because it's grown specifically to be that material, whereas our mission and our focus is focus on waste. So it's a very easy decision-making process. And something that I didn't mention, but we just track it across all our activities is CO2 emissions, where we've got this tracker internally. The materials that I'm most excited about is, so we're currently working with an amazing company based in London and the founder, Mira, is also a career changer. She went from working at Google to developing the first compostable lead alternative. Not only is it made from agricultural waste, so the first prototypes were made from leaves and twigs from Fulham Park in London. So we were the first brand to try it and prototypes and products out of it. The beauty of it is that it's home compostable. So if you buy a handbag now, even if it's made from leather, there are usually a lot of different components that go in there. There's some sort of, there's the lining, there's structural parts. It's all glued together. There's probably going to be, if it's a structured bag, it's probably going to be some sort of plastic somewhere. I can guarantee you that because I've taken apart quite a few bags in my lifetime. (laughs) just for research purposes. And it's metal bits, you know, all of this is actually 
nobody takes it apart usually. There's no infrastructure to recycle it. Even if you take it apart, what do you do with the leather? What do you do with all those bits are not recyclable usually? And home compostable material means that you can just chuck it into compost. Biodegradable usually means that it will biodegrade under very specific conditions at a very specific facility. As, you know, everyday consumers, we're often led to believe that, oh, there's biodegradable coffee cup. I'm just going to put it where? Where do you put it? People just put it into recycling and that contaminates the entire bag of recycling. So I would always tell people to be cautious with biodegradable alone, but home compostable, like compostable materials, that means it will dissolve without trace. That's a good vernacular thing to learn. Or it says biodegradable, make sure that it's also home compostable. Or there is the infrastructure. So sometimes when it says biodegradable, but it will biodegrade into thousands of microplastics particles you know, or something like this. Just the word biodegradable, it's amazing, but it's something just to bear in mind that it's not very straightforward. So Biophilica, so the company that we work with, what they've come up with is really post-waste. It's creating a product that will not create any waste. At the end, it just disintegrates into soil without changing the composition of the soil. Like it's pretty amazing. That's fascinating. So Thinking about that, and also you have two marketers in the room, you can't get away with saying you don't have market segments. So this question is also asking you more details about that. But hearing you talk about all these products and the materials you're using, I'm wondering when you do communicate to your customer, how do you balance your values and educating customers while showcasing this aesthetic and appealing to them? And then now, since you told us you don't have segments, like how do you connect with the people that would resonate with your brand? It's always a conversation. I mean, we have an internal formula that we, for us, it's about 40% of our outgoing content and communications is impact comps. And about 60% is the purely product aesthetics visuals. Whether we want it or not, we're part of the fashion industry. I don't particularly want it to be part of it, but I ended up here. We're like, okay, we're going to play by the rules, but because impact is such an important part of the brand. And I think this is why a lot of our customers come to us. So we're splitting it 60-40. We talk to an educated customer. We know these are highly educated women and men, that people that are doers, but we don't need to explain them the basics. It's just this one area maybe where we know a little bit more than someone who is a doctor or a lawyer, we know that it's a very highly educated. We have a lot of journalists among our customers, a lot of media professionals, doctors, marketeers. Interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, you do have your segments or your segment, your go-to, but then you're trying to strike the balance of the formula of connecting with their aesthetic, connecting with their hearts and minds. And just probably, I imagine you test out different percentages and see what has what impact with with sales at the end of the day. And so thanks for sharing. But it's always a conversation like how far can we push the impact storytelling? <laughs> That's me pushing that and our comms team is like, hmm, <laughs> let's do a bit more fashion. <laughs> totally. I feel like it'll always be a balance. I mean, also depending on the economy, like people resonate with different aspects of a brand or a mission, depending on where they are in their life or what they're doing or what's top of mind. So I imagine it's just a ever evolving kind of journey and formula there. It is. Yeah. But I definitely need to pick your brain on marketing. It's an important case. <laughs> pick Lola's. It's a treasure of information. <laughs> You're both here anytime you want to get into it. You did say you said 
I don't want to botch it. So I'm just going to say what I understood, which is like, you know, we're part of the fashion industry, whether we like it or not. Would you describe Ben as like, let's say remove all the labels that the world might put on it? Like, how would you describe it? Would you lead with fashion company? Or would you lead with something else? Oh, this is a tough question. Sorry. <laughs> you know what? When I started it, I have to be honest with you. So going back to the coffee cups, my initial idea was to make stationery out of used coffee cups. I was like, well, if you can separate the paper from the polyethylene that lines the coffee cups and makes them all the liquid. I was talking to a lot of different partners and I thought I can turn it into the prettiest notebooks in the world and they will tell the story those notebooks will tell the story because they're going to be made of used coffee cups and spread the message of it's difficult to recycle but it but it wasn't commercially viable i mean there's not notebooks would sell for like a hundred dollars each no one's going to buy that the technology just wasn't there and still isn't really so it's a very expensive process but because i was on a roll collecting all those waste materials that were being shipped to my house in east london to the surprise of my husband and children, they were like, well, mommy, where's this again? <laughs> so it's like plastics, metals, leathers, fabrics, all of that. So I always saw it as a slightly wider range of like a lifestyle brand and accessories and maybe stationery, but very close to, to our start, we were hit by a pandemic. So we're like, okay, let's just do one thing really, really well. But the dream of making it a bigger thing, still somewhere in the back of my mind. So I think... It's definitely just the beginning. I think we'll go wider in terms of what we make under the same umbrella. We know you will. The voice went all emotional and raspy. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like just a whisper. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We're now an ASMR podcast. Um, <laughs> We transition quite smoothly. <laughs> oh. One thing we wanted to dive into is just hearing a little bit more about the process. So thinking of a bag or one of the items, you're particularly proud of the way it came together with the different materials. And so, yeah, could you just walk us through that? I'm just looking around the studio now. You know what? We have a bag called Ridley. It looks like this. The listeners won't see it, but it's like this ribbed little crossbody. I mean, there's so many processes intertwined and so many stories that I love it because it has this multiple stories. So the lining is discarded clothes. So that's the process that happens in Italy. Clothes that can no longer be repaired get separated by color. I mean, it has to be cotton. So it first actually gets separated by what the mix of materials it is, but cotton fibers get separated by color, threaded. So they kind of just put fiberized. So it's turned back into fiber, rewoven into thread. And then rewoven into fabric. And it's this beautiful, really luxurious, thick, recycled cotton made in Italy. Then the zip, so it's single-use plastic bottles, shredded. Then you melt them. Then you turn them into thread. Then you turn that thread into fabric. And that becomes the tape of the zip that is used to open and close the bag. The same technology is used for the rope that creates that ribbed texture. Leather-like material on the outside that you see is tannery waste. So it's basically where cow and cow hides get processed. About 40% of all leather actually gets discarded at this stage. So you can capture this. It's already cleaned. It hadn't been dyed. So it's a clean material and that can be milled into powder 
and then press together using high pressure water. So they're all similar processes, right? You just powder something and then press it together or weave it together to make a new material. And then all those materials meet. Sounds very easy. <laughs> Do it in my sleep. <laughs> they all meet in London. They all come on a roll, which actually means that there's very little wastage. Imagine a cow height and all the curves and irregular edging. So all those materials come on a roll. And the way we cut things, the way we design products is all the panels are square or rectangular. If you look at this now, they're only square or rectangulars. It's somewhat limiting in the design, of course, but we choose it so that we don't create any waste. So we basically, it's all just, it's all cut in pieces that kind of fit together really nicely. And then it's local makers. There used to be a big leather goods industry here in East London. At the moment, it's really dying and it's so sad. I think my heart is in reviving the industry while also helping them meet the innovation that happens around the world. So it's kind of bringing innovation and this beautiful skills together. That's, I think, how we see ourselves. And I think there's probably a process. Innovation alone without the artisans wouldn't be really exciting. And artisans need the innovation bit to survive and to keep the skill sets going. So, yes. And I know you said that anyone listening couldn't see the Ridley bag, but I did stumble upon on your workshop part of your website, you have the Ridley and like a few pictures, like Ridley by stage. So anyone who's listening can go and check that out because it kind of provides a good visual for what you were just saying, Jen. Yeah. You talked about the artisans who are behind what people are touching, feeling, but also putting the things they own in. And when we were catching up with you earlier, you kind of told a funny story about when you first started and you had to go to people saying like, can you work with this material? So it's not only artisans with their very unique and very necessary, much needed skills, but there's also an added layer to the complexity of the materials they work with and doing it oftentimes for the first time. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that accurate? Yeah, I found people that were up for it. Yes. I mean, there's only a handful of leather goods studios remaining in East London. And I think I've spoken to all of them and I got a no from all of them because they saw me as this crazy lady who wants a bag brand. I'm like, that wasn't even my motivation, but I can imagine they get a lot of requests and, you know, I didn't even have a website, but I was like, so I've got this bunch of really cool materials and I've got the designs and it's all, you know, I went to a bag design school to make sure I get the specs correctly. I wanted to be, I wanted to come prepared. So yeah, I didn't meet a lot of enthusiasm like, hmm, new materials. We don't really know how to work with them and we don't want to try. Bye. Good luck. You got one yes. I got one yes from actually this incredible woman who had been, you know, her daughter, as it turned out, was studying sustainability at St. Andrews in Edinburgh. And she only started like a couple of months before I turned up on her doorstep. So she had been prepared for my arrival and she immediately said, yes, let's give it a try. I really want to do it. And we were the only people with those new materials coming to her at the time. And yeah, we've been working together. I saw her yesterday. <laughs> I mean, we still work together. We have a wider network of makers at the moment, but her workshop still makes a good chunk of all our products. And it's just 10 minutes away from where I'm sitting now. It's all very local. You can get all the no's in the world, but all you need is one yes and you're in business. Yeah. 
So previously, my job titles were like global director of this or director of this. And people respond to your emails, you know, so I was used to just writing an email and you get a response. I was super spoiled. You know, if you make a, such a dramatic career shift and you're like, hi, I'm just nobody. I'm emailing you from my gmail.com account and people don't respond. And it's like, damn it. So it was a learning curve in this industry. I am nobody. So I'm just going to, you know, I'll have to email again and follow up and follow up again, get angry, get upset, have a little cry and then try again and finally get a response or not. <laughs> but yeah, anyone who started anything knows that it's a bloody roller coaster. It's kind of, it was a good training session for all of us to come. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this today with us. And to end, it's abundantly clear your mission and your values and thinking forward, what legacy are you trying to leave? I think just showing that it's possible to care about every step of your product of the supply chain, of how it travels from you to the customer, from like the very beginning, from the raw material to the very end, and do everything better. Not flying products around the world, but actually getting things by sea. You know, it takes, it's slower, it's more expensive, it's hard as hell. Local manufacturing is very expensive. Like all of this is not easy, I'm telling you. But I think even if we disappear tomorrow, I feel like we... What we did and hopefully what we will continue doing is show that it is possible because all those big corporations that keep saying, you know, it's just very good idea, but it's so difficult. They're big and plunky and it's difficult for them to change. And we're quick and we make decisions quickly. And we, if we manage to show that a different approach is possible and convince a few people along the way that it can look good and it can be a really cool product, then I'll... Um, consider mission accomplished we would too yeah we would too making the blueprint i love it thanks guys thank you, <laughs> thank you.